Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road and a class that we're calling Living Water. I like to say that most Christians want to read the Bible, and they figure that they should read the Bible, but they don't know how to read the Bible. And as a result, we stick with a few stories and verses while a thousand pages of Scripture goes both unread and unloved. Well, these days, we're looking at the Bible through the lens of water, and along the way, we're going to meet some new people and new stories with surprising relevance for today. Uh, The title of this class is called, What's Up with the Golden Calf? And to get us started, I want to tell the story of a guy who really got the Bible wrong. It happened early in the second century. A late Roman theologian turned heretic named Marcion had a big idea, and it was a wrong idea. He decided that the New Testament story sounded so different from the Old Testament stories to the point that Jesus was an entirely new God, he figured, and distant from the vengeful and angry creator God of the Hebrew Scriptures. As a result, he threw out pretty much everything before Jesus, and I'm not so sure that some of us don't do the same thing. When I was a child in Alabama public school, every fifth grader received a Bible. I know that sounds funny now, but we did. We received a Bible from the Gideons, and it was a tiny little thing we could carry in our pockets, the New Testament with Psalms, as if the only thing worth saving in the first part of our Bibles is the Psalms. Marcion would love that idea. And this means that really it's common to dismiss the Old Testament. I mean, people do it all the time uh, as either irrelevant at best or at worst, something Jesus came to replace. So it helps to remember when we read these very old stories, and I'm thinking Bronze Age era here, right? Bronze Age would be the era from, say, Abraham right up to the time of David. Uh, If we read these old stories, and they're really old from a time very distant from ours, we have to compare them to the styles of other stories at the time. For example, if you read anything from, from say, 4,000 B.C. to 1,000 B.C., numbers can't be taken very seriously. In the Bible, it'll say 100,000 men died. Or you also uh, have to dismiss a lot of hyperbole. Joshua was ordered to kill every man, woman, and child. And so for even in these primitive, bloodthirsty Old Testament stories, What you see is the Hebrews emerging uh, as a different people, growing, if you will, in their understanding of God. Even Even in the most bloodthirsty of stories, you see the difference between the Hebrews and, say, their Canaanite neighbors. One, they don't worship a god king, a little g god. Rather, they worship the god who made heaven and earth, right? They worship God. They don't worship nature. Although they do write, and they're the only ancients to do this, right, that, that nature reveals the handiwork of God. So they are obedient. They're learning the nature of God and their relationship to God and each other, even though the stories seem really strange to us. So I'll use, for example, the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is, is a bloodthirsty story. It tells of the exploits and battles, all commanded by God, and, and fought, you know, this land fought over as Joshua conquers the promised land on behalf of God for God's people. And it's supposed to be a total clearing out, if you will, of that land for the 12 tribes, but not all the lands or the peoples are conquered. And that's the story I want to tell you today. In Joshua chapter 9, 
a nation called the Gibeonites saved themselves. Other other nations, you need to understand, if you, if you pick up Joshua, it's not going to be your morning cup of inspiration, okay? Joshua is wiping out city after city after city in order to clear out the land for God's people. But in Joshua chapter 9, a nation called the Gibeonites, they saved themselves by trickery. They pretend to be from a far-off land with dried wineskins and worn-out clothes and old dusty animals, and they tricked the Hebrews into swearing an oath to let them pass and to save them. Now, this swearing of an oath is very, very important. I need to give you a tutorial, and that's a word about oaths or words in this ancient time. The ancient Hebrews believed that words have power, power to do things. I mean, after all, God used words to convey the divine mind in the Ten Commandments. And more importantly, oaths and blessings that can't be taken back. You remember the story of old blind Isaac with the two sons, Jacob and Esau, right? And Jacob tricks his blind father into giving the blessing or the inheritance uh, down to through Jacob's line. That blessing can't be taken back once those words are spoken. So as a result, the Hebrews are very, very careful with their words. And for this reason, Hebrew is a word-poor language with only, say, 10,000 words, as opposed to the million words that we use in English today. Needless to say, in Joshua chapter 9, Joshua is furious when he finds out that the Gibeonites have tricked him into an oath, and he makes this pronouncement in Joshua 9, verse 22 and 23, and here it goes. Joshua summoned them and said to them, why did you deceive us saying we are very far from you while in fact you are living among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall always be slaves, hewers of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. Whoop, drawers of water. There's water again. But why is this a problem? Why was Joshua commanded to clear out the land of anyone not like them, and what's the deal? Well, if you look at the at the whole of the Bible, and please remember that the Bible is a library of books. It's not simply a book. It's a library of text from you know, a thousand years or more difference with a thousand different authors, perhaps. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a library, and yet there are ideas that hang. And one of these ideas is that God always wanted his people to be different, a holy nation, according to Exodus chapter 19. They were to be a holy nation. And look, here's a key point here. Even from the very beginning of understanding that they were supposed to be different, it was always understood that this was a conditional arrangement. In other words, they would be holy if they did holy things. They would be holy and different if they choose to be holy and different. And this means justice and righteousness. And the rest of the Bible, if you had to look at a key theme, addresses this chasm between God's ideal and what they really, really are. But that was the original dream. They would be different. Just as kings would be different, if the, if the Hebrews have a king, a Hebrew king would be different than a Phoenician king. Uh, slaves would be different. And a good idea is, is the Sabbath is different. In other words, they, they understood the seventh day as an equalizer. All would rest with God. Kings would rest with God. Even slaves would rest with God. Much, much later in the Roman world, in the first century, St. Paul would take this idea out into a world very, very far from the world of Jesus and the world of Joshua, the world of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, and with this salutation to the letter he writes to the church in Corinth, he says the same thing. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is just his hello uh, to the letter, to, to the people that he has, has invited really to join this journey as children of Abraham. This is what he says. 
to the church of God that is in Corinth, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those in every place calling their name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses it the same way. To be a saint or to be holy doesn't mean good. It simply means a part. Romans now were becoming the people of God. They were becoming different in the way that the Bible asked them to be different. Okay, but that, that's a good start. But why apart, right? Why, well, after all, I mean, why different from everybody else around you? We tend to think diversity is a good thing these days. We celebrate our difference now. So why would we want to be apart and, and together in that apartness? Well, I think there are a couple answers. But first, if you go back to the world of the ancient world, the Bronze Age world, the world of Joshua, I would say that it's because you were apart because the locals followed other gods, which violates the very first commandment. When God wrote with his own finger on a tablet, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. So God told them right off the bat, you can't really hang out with people who don't worship me because, because you'll be tempted uh, to stray. You'll be tempted to do what they do. And look, even the land around them became a temptation to stray away from the dream. You know, to explain, I'll, I'll go back and we're going to hone in on what's this deal with the golden calf, I think, in just a minute. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11, the, the first 11 chapters really of the first book of the Bible, these can be read as prehistory with a good description from our, of our descent from a garden, which would be a hunter-gatherer existence, into a city. Now, I know that Genesis 1 through 11 are full of well-worn and well-told stories, to, and we might be apt to, to not see the trajectory, but try to put Try to put Noah out of your mind and try to put Cain and Abel out of your mind and try to put Garden, Garden of Eden and the snake out of your mind. Try to put the Tower of Babel out of your mind and look at it as a descent from, from a life where God gives you everything you need, which would include water, uh, would include food, would include you know, shelter, anything that you might need, uh, into, into a city where they built a tower that they thought would, would reach, reach to God. Uh, here's the problem, and anthropologists have, have long known this. This is pretty much a, a general, a generally agreed upon idea. A hunter-gatherer existence would be a small family group that followed the weather. Uh, they would follow the game, follow the weather, follow whatever whatever the seasons are, whatever you're eating. Uh, this is where they would go. When we settled down into cities, you know, fortified places near rivers, near water, so that so that grain could be grown. Those would be the super cities that had control of the most water, hydraulic civilizations that we talked about in a past episode. Uh, once cities became fixed and they didn't move around, you didn't follow the weather. So that weather became very, very important. Cities and the domestication of grain are entirely dependent upon rain. Rain. So you've got rivers and you've got rain and you're not chasing them, but rather you're sitting there waiting, waiting for something good to happen to you. The golden calves of this ancient time are simply put, rain gods, storm gods, provider gods. And it would be tempting if you were a Hebrew living amongst all these foreign people to hedge your bets and borrow a neighbor's method for securing food and safety and even children, fertility. Hey, let's remember that if Genesis 1 through 11 is a prehistory, the story of us really begins in Genesis chapter 12 with the call of a man named Abraham to leave a city behind and to become, to become a new people in the way that God had always dreamed of our being. And, and what would this be? Well, dependent and trusting and following a dream. 
And Abram's own dream, Abram would later become Abraham, Abram's own dream was just to have a child of his own. He's already an old, old man. He and Sarah had given up on it a long time ago. A child of his own and land to give it to. So God promises, if you follow me, this is part of the condition, right? If you will be a part in the way that I ask you to be a part, if you will be different, I will give you a child. Your dreams will come true and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars above your head. That all starts in Genesis chapter 12. He doesn't have the kid until Genesis chapter 21. That's a long time to wait. That's a long time to trust. That's a long time to follow a dream. So you might be tempted to hedge your bets, right? If, if, it, if, it, wasn't, um, if it wasn't a golden calf, that might, uh, that, might, that might help you feel a little better. It might be something else that your foreign neighbors had. I hope you begin to see the point. They wanted them to be a part so they could remember the dream. If you're with neighbors who don't believe, then you might be tempted to hedge just a little bit. And look, if a golden calf didn't lead you astray, even the land itself became idolatrous. They really had to keep their eye on the ball. I'm going to give you a specific example here. In the land that we would call Judea, we call Israel today, two biblical trees are symbiotic, and they still grow there. They grow, they grow together, and they grow well together. They're two different species, but for some reason, and I can, I can probably look it up and give you a more technical reason, but they grow uh, around each other and within each other, and it's the oak and the pistachio. And they, usually you find one, you find the other, just like peas and carrots, oaks and pistachios, and so that in, the, in time— the oak came to represent for the for the locals, okay, not for the Hebrews conquering the promised land, but for the locals around them and before them and, and continuing alongside of them like the Gibeonites, perhaps. The locals would say that the oak represents Baal, the storm god, okay, the, the golden calf god. The oak would be Baal, and then the pistachio would be Astartes or the fertility goddess. And in Jeremiah chapter 2.20, the prophet would complain of naughty activity that happened under those trees that makes the Bible PG-13 at best. For my money, the saddest of all these idolatry stories of these golden calf stories is Exodus 32, which now makes sense, right? If we think of it in terms of rain or security, because they were now as escapees from Egypt living in a world with no water. They are, they, are, they are in a moonscape, if you will. They left the safety of the Nile River with all the food they ever needed and all the water they ever needed, but no freedom. So Moses comes as a liberator and through all these mighty signs and wonders, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you an aside about, about the book of Exodus. I want you to notice that God doesn't do any of this stuff anywhere else but Exodus because, because they snakes turning into sticks, for instance, the Nile turning into blood. Um, right, boils, frogs, plagues, darkness, whatever, whatever God does to wail on the Egyptians, he doesn't do that anywhere else in the Bible, which is a principle that I'll call the principle of specificity. So when you're reading Scripture, you need to understand the world in which they lived or the context with, with which they lived, and the Egyptians lived in a world of magic. They expected their gods to perform magic, that would prove their existence. Their own priests would perform magic. Remember, uh, Moses would throw down a stick. It would turn into a snake. The priests would throw down sticks. They would turn into snakes. And so Moses and God would use their own, their own worldview, if you will, to turn this on their head and to rescue slaves from the most, from the most wealthy superpower on the planet at that point to prove the sovereignty of God. So it only happens in Exodus that way. And so Moses now has gotten them out of bondage, but so they have freedom, 
but they have to be dependent. Before they had everything they needed, but no freedom, which is a great, great point, right? Great thing to think about. And Moses takes them way out in the desert to the holy mountain, and up on the mountain with God, he stays just a little too long, and the Hebrews fashion a golden calf, which is something they can see. You get into, I hope you're starting to get the point here. They're hedging. They're in a world where they're afraid. There's no water. They're by themselves, and they can't see God, so they make something that they can see to give them what they think that they need. In Egyptian, speaking of context, the word ka, K-A, ka, meaning life force, which means the, the very life force within us, meaning, meaning life itself, whether you live or die, also means bull. So they really are setting up an alternative God with this golden calf at the bottom of the mountain. And it's curious what Moses does next. He sees them, breaks the tablets. Let me read it to you. It's Exodus chapter 32, 19 through 20. As soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf in the dancing, Moses' anger grew hot and he threw the tablets from his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. Another water story in a surprising place. You think the calf made water for you? Here, you drink it. So clearly God is a jealous God. But there is another deeper reason. Some eight centuries before Jesus, we'll go to another place in our library that we call the Bible, right? Eight eight centuries before the birth of Christ, a king named Ahab ruled the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, This is at the time when when the two halves of the the Hebrew nation split into two. I'll give you a quick timeline. Uh, King David is about a thousand years before Jesus. And so David and then Solomon, his, his great and mighty son, built the temple and, and stressed the kingdom to the point with his with this very, very expensive capital city and some other, other problems that Solomon would fall into, that it was a tenuous relationship. And so by the time you get to, to Solomon's children, uh, the kingdom would split uh, into 10 tribes in the north uh, called Israel and two tribes in the south called Judah with the capital in Jerusalem. And this is where the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures gets a little confusing because sometimes you hear about Judah, sometimes you hear about Israel. They're two different countries. Israel never had a settled capital. It kind of moved around. Uh, But Ahab on paper, eight centuries before Christ, was a very, very good king of this northern, northern kingdom. On paper, he was successful. He was good at war. He was good at horses. He was good at administration. The big problem with Ahab and the reason why history refers to Ahab as wicked King Ahab is that Ahab took a foreign wife, Jezebel, Phoenician by birth. She worshiped Baal the rain god, and as such, she had foreign ethics, which is really which is really where we're where we're getting now to the second reason why you need to stay apart. Not only are you tempted to hedge if you've got a golden calf around, but you might act like people who worship the golden calf. So I want to tell you a story, and then I'll recap the the end for you. It's in 1 Kings chapter 21, and it's a crime. It's a crime against humanity, and it happens happens with Ahab. It happens under his nose. Um, Ahab had a palace in the Jezreel Valley, which is a beautiful, beautiful breadbasket. It's the very beginning of the the Fertile Crescent, and at the mouth of the valley is the city of Megiddo, which has been fought over some 20 20 times. It's a 7,000-year-old city, and it was a place where Ahab quartered his horses. And a few kilometers uh, east of there, in the middle of the valley, Ahab had a palace, and he, he noticed one day a vineyard adjacent to his palace belonging to his neighbor Naboth. 
and he wanted it. He desired this vineyard, but Naboth wouldn't sell it. It was precious to him. It was in his family. He he didn't want to sell, and Ahab could have anything he wanted except for that vineyard. So he sought. Well, Jezebel, his foreign wife, who was from Phoenicia and thought like a Phoenician queen, not a Hebrew queen. Remember, they're supposed to be different in the way that God asks us to be different. She says, I got this. And so she calls for an assembly of the people, and she puts two scoundrels on either side of Naboth who call out that he has uh, violated, uh, he has blasphemed God and violated his vows to God. And so the assembly calls for his murder, and they do. So poor Naboth is killed for his vineyard, and Jezebel delivers the goods. Now I'll read 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 15 and 16. This is the end of the story. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Go, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab set to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. It's just like an episode of The Sopranos. Kings take and they take and they take what they want, except not Hebrew kings. The prophet Elijah would come and predict their death and it would happen. And that's a story of ethics. But here's another. This story happened at an important place called Bethel. We say Bethel, but it means Bethel, house of God. It's in the north in what would become the kingdom of Israel, and it happens right after the kingdom had split in two, which I described to you. Bethel, the house of God, is a famous place in the Bible. It's it's a place where uh, Abraham camped. It's a place where Jacob had a dream, uh, Jacob Jacob's ladder, remember? And Jeroboam, the very first king of Israel, had a very, very bad idea here. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 12, and basically, I'll recap what I'm about to read to you. Uh, Jeroboam knew that Judah had a capital city of Jerusalem, and Jeroboam knew that the temple was in Jerusalem, and Jeroboam knew that Israelites, even though they're the cousins of those living in the new kingdom of Judah, would be traveling down there uh, to worship. And so kings are also practical. And Jeroboam had a really, what he thought was a good idea that made God really, really mad. Okay, it has to do with the golden calf. 1 Kings 12, verse 25. Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and resided there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Then Jeroboam said to himself, Now the kingdom may well revert to the house of David if this people continues to go offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. The heart of this people will turn again to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah, and they will kill me and return to King Rehoboam of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. He said to the people, you've gone to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. In other words, the king just set up a one-stop shop. You can worship the God of Israel if you want to, or you can also go with the rain gods. And it was an abomination. The problem is ethics again. If you follow, it's a two-part problem, right? If you follow your neighbor's gods, then you're also going to act like your neighbors, and you're going to lose this, this justice and holiness that God always demanded for you to be different. Amos, who's the first prophet whose words are recorded, uh, would say this about Jeroboam and his, and his idea. So if you look at the prophets, you look at the book of Amos, he is, he's a, um, 
in this period of time where Jeroboam has built these golden calves. And this is what he says in his anthology. This is Amos chapter 5, different part of our library. Amos 5, verse 21. See if you recognize these famous verses. This is God's word to Jeroboam. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Well, Martin Luther King would make that part of his famous sermon. Uh, and Martin Luther King is very much in the tradition of the prophets in that as best as I could tell, the prophets would always preach two sermons, justice and holiness, and they're the same thing. Two sermons, justice which means rightness in the world, fairness, protection of the poor and needy, an awareness of people suffering around you, and holiness, which means keeping your life apart and holy for God. And if we do that, then right, justice and righteousness will flow from it, right? So as best I can tell, the prophets would preach two sermons at the same time. Get your heart right and get your hands right. Another unknown prophet was more graphic in his judgment of this bad idea of Jeroboam's. He warned that Jeroboam's altar would be torn down and bones would be scattered upon it, rendering it unclean forever. And 300 years later, King Josiah of Judah, who we met in episode two, would do this very thing. The book is 2 Kings in the 23rd verse. And it goes like this. 15th, 15th, excuse me, 23rd chapter, 15th verse. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He pulled down the altar along with that high place, and he burned the high place, crushing it to dust. He also burned the sacred pole. Josiah turned, and he saw the tombs there on the mount, and he went and he took the bones out of the tombs, and he burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God had proclaimed. When Jeroboam stood by the altar at the festival, he turned and looked at the tomb of the man of God who had predicted these things, and he left that tomb alone. It was this important to God that his people would be different and trust with no golden calves, even, even if it meant trusting God alone for the gift of water. So it leaves us with a couple questions. How do you see belief informing your ethics? Can you match your heart with your hands? And two, what does it mean to live a trusting life? Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Hey there, my name is Susanna Whitsitt, and I serve on the staff of St. Luke's. I have two roles. One is the staff liaison for SOAR Ministries for Mature Adults. The other is as the executive director of Founders Place. You may know that Founders Place is a ministry for adults with memory loss and their caregivers. We have a weekly group for caregivers of loved ones with memory loss, and we have a bi-weekly social program that is volunteer-driven and just steeped in a huge amount of hospitality and love and joy. Now, a really important part of Founders Place is working to understand dementia and decrease the stigma around it. We want to learn more so that we can be better neighbors and spouses and friends to our loved ones with dementia. We want to know more so we can learn how to take care of our own brain health. And we want to work to create a more dementia-friendly community. So on Sunday, September 25th at 2.30, we are offering a simulation presentation on dementia. It's called Hidden Realities. 
And during this presentation, we are going to view and discuss some of the hidden perspectives on common life realities related to conditions such as Alzheimer's and other diseases that cause dementia. This is a very valuable opportunity for family or paid caregivers and everyone who desires a more dementia-friendly society. So come with us to learn on Sunday, September 25th at 2.30. There is no cost. Just call the church to sign up or send an email to foundersplace at saint-lukes.com.